Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. In this week's Miranda Warnings, we welcome back Professor Vin Bonventry of Albany Law School. Welcome back, Vin. Oh, always great to be with you, David. Professor Bonventry is the Justice Jackson Distinguished Professor at Albany Law School. He is he has also served as a judicial fellow uh, with uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and as a clerk on the Court of Appeals. And today we're going to be talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, the New York Court of Appeals, uh, both. So we're very happy to have you here to talk about these uh, important courts. And I love speaking about both those courts. You've written an article recently about the New York's Court of New York Court of Appeals in the era of Trump and how the New York Court of Appeals can have an impact nationally on uh, our legal case law and decision making. Uh, our Court of Appeals in New York historically has been a leader nationally uh, in progressive judicial change. Tell us a little bit about the New York Court of Appeals role historically uh, on uh, with the courts. Sure. Since the New York Court of Appeals was instituted in 1846, it has been one of the best or the best court in the country, bar none. In fact, uh, oftentimes in our history, it's been pretty clear to judicial scholars that the New York Court of Appeals was a better, sometimes even a far better court than the United States Supreme Court. And indeed, throughout its history, uh, the New York Court of Appeals oftentimes would render decisions which would then be followed by the United States Supreme Court. And I'm talking about even periods where the United States Supreme Court was deemed to be a great progressive court. So, for example, in the United States Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren, many of its landmark decisions relied upon New York Court of Appeals decisions. And in fact, some of the times, the uh, United States Supreme Court not only would cite the New York Court of Appeals, but would make it plain it was relying on what the New York Court of Appeals had done. They would even, uh, for example, identify the authors of the opinion. They would oftentimes do that, for example, with uh, Stanley Fold, who was, I mean, one of the great judges in American history. Well, in, in one of the cases that, that uh, Judge Fold wrote was uh, People versus Donovan in 1963 involving yes. self-incrimination right. and the right to counsel. So this was in New York State yes. where we found a yes. uh, right to counsel pre-Miranda uh, well, v. Arizona. Right. And the New York State Court of Appeals found this. And then and after that, People versus People versus Waterman as well. That's right. So the New York Court of Appeals was ahead of the United States Supreme Court. And again, historically, that wasn't uncommon. Uh, and, and typically today, I mean, the New York Court of Appeals is usually about a generation ahead of the United States Supreme Court. There have been some exceptions, but uh, by and large, the New York Court of Appeals has been ahead of the United States Supreme Court. And that's because of judicial federalism. Well, it's because of federalism generally. I mean, states are allowed to do anything within our constitutional system as long as they don't actually violate the federal constitution. So if the New York Court of Appeals uh, wants to render decisions that are different 
from the United States Supreme Court. That's absolutely fine as long as they're not actually violating, for example, somebody's federal constitutional rights. And the New York Court of Appeals has been a leader since the beginning, since the outset, in doing that kind of thing. And as the New York Court of Appeals has recognized and, and other state courts have recognized is that the U.S. Constitution provides minimal standards of protections of, of well, that's liberties. A, that's and a functional – that is a functional – description of what it is. And the reason why we say that the federal constitution is the floor, it's the minimal, it's because states aren't allowed to violate it, right? right? It's not as though the role of the federal constitution and the role of the United States Supreme Court is to provide the minimal protection. In fact, many justices throughout history would have said, no, that's not our role at all. Our role is to vigorously uh, vigorously enforce rights. But as a practical, functional matter, whatever the Supreme Court says with regard to protecting rights, that turns out to be the minimal. So states can't go below that. Right. But states can, and New York State has in the past, provided additional protections to its Tr citizens based upon its own New York State Constitution. Oh, absolutely. Traditionally. And, you know, when you, when you look throughout history, for example, you know, uh, Irving Lehman, when Irving Lehman was the chief uh, judge of New York, he made it absolutely clear our responsibility as the highest court in New York is to independently protect rights under the New York State Constitution. So we're not bound by what the United States Supreme Court does. And, you know, that was carried on with Cuthbert Pound. That was carried on certainly with Chief Judge Cook, Stanley Fuld, uh, Judith Kay. So, you know, we've had a long series of chief judges who led the court in a progressive direction which, you know, the United States Supreme Court might follow a generation or two later. Right. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about not only the fact that uh, the New York Court of Appeals can provide additional protections right. for its citizens, yes. but it also can lay the groundwork for policy and thinking that can infiltrate okay. to other courts and including the Supreme Court. And one of a great example, I think, comes with uh, Judge Kay's dissent in Hernandez versus Robles, which was the gay marriage uh, That's right. case in which uh, at the time, the New York State Court of Appeals ruled against it, but Judge Kay wrote a, a, right. a, a dissent. It was a magnificent in dissent. In 2006 that uh, said that this was something that would be protected under the New York State Constitution. Right. And, you know, 10 years later in the U.S. Supreme Court in Obergefell, right. they came around to That's right. Judge Kay's to decision. To what Judge Kay thought. Yeah, well, of course, uh, Chief Judge Kay was one of the national leaders in advocating for state high courts to rule independent of what the Supreme Court was doing and protect rights and liberties, even if the United States Supreme Court is going backward in that regard. She pushed that nationally and she pushed that within the court because, you know, I mean, historically, uh, let, let's be realist, let's be candid. I mean, every judge on the New York Court of Appeals has not been particularly great. And some of the judges on the Court of Appeals seemed not even to understand that the New York Court of Appeals can render independent decisions. And Chief Judge Kay, for example, in her concurring opinion in People versus Scott, which I think was 91 or 92, and then also in Hernandez versus Robles having to do with same-sex marriage, she made it clear, look, 
look, guys, you know, we don't have to follow the United States Supreme Court. This is New York. This is a progressive state. We ought to be protecting the rights of our citizens, you know. And um, that was like, again, that was one of her great opinions. Well, let's talk about that, about the U.S. Supreme Court potentially going backwards, because there's right. some concern. Uh, the current president, Donald Trump, has right. just appointed two uh, two new members to the U.S. Supreme Court. There's a potential uh, for more to come, and people are concerned yes. that that some of the some of the case law that's been in place for many years at the U.S. Supreme Court might potentially be in jeopardy. One example that's raised often is the is the Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. And uh, there's a concern that this is going to uh, perhaps be overturned. There's some indication that potentially that would happen, and uh, we don't know, obviously, That's at this right. point. But the New York Court of Appeals certainly would have uh, an opportunity to, Absolutely. if that were the case, to, to rule on it. And in fact, even Donald Trump himself said, well, if it's overturned, then the states can decide for themselves. Right. Well, of course, there's historic precedent for this. You know, after um, Earl Warren at the United States Supreme Court retired and then the court under uh, Chief Justice Warren Burger and then William Rehnquist and now uh, Roberts, um, became, became much more conservative, right? And I'm talking about in a politically conservative sense, um, much more pro-prosecution, much less in favor of basic civil rights and civil liberties. Uh, the New York Court of Appeals didn't go backward. In fact, the New York Court of Appeals, whether it was under uh, uh, Fold or Brightell or certainly Cook, um, Chief Judge Cook, continued, continued to be very, very progressive. In fact, under Chief Judge Cook, I don't think there was any question. The New York Court of Appeals was the most progressive court in the country. The United States Supreme Court was going in one direction, and the New York Court of Appeals was going in the other direction, both with regard to due process, right to counsel, interrogation. Um, you know, so New York Court of Appeals was recognized as the leader in the country. Right now, Professor Bonventry, you write a blog. It's called uh, NewYorkCourtWatcher.com, yes. and you've written a lot about uh, both the Supreme Court and New York courts. Right. Uh, you've also written an article, which is one of my favorite pieces that you wrote. Thank you. you list your your top ten fun. judges of the it Court of fun. Appeals, you know, pre nineteen eighty five. You list your top ten decisions, but one <laughs> of the one of the one of my favorites is you know your your number one judge is uh, Benjamin Cardozo, well, which sure. you know that's uh, that's an easy one. Sure, um, but you talk about the. Schlondorf case, which is yes. the number three in the Bonventry ranked I know, decisions, number so three. Um, but in that case, it's interesting. I'm looking at some of the quotes that you had from that case right. and, and see how they apply today. This is 1914. That's right. It was a medical tort case, but uh, Judge Cardozo stated that it, he predicated the ruling on every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with their body. Is that something? And, is that and something? How this is over 100 years is later, and this is the same thing the that same we're talking thing. about. The absolute same thing. And a few interesting things about that is that was his first opinion. It was his very first opinion. And Cardozo did what he oftentimes would do, would take a case which would seem kind of routine, 
and turn it into something extraordinary. Right, this was and a medical tort yes, case. Yes, right. and that's what he did with the Schlondorf case. So that line, which you just recited, has been repeated probably hundreds of times. I mean, on right-to-die cases, right-to-choose cases, all kinds of cases, you know, having to do with personal autonomy, bodily integrity. You know, human beings, again, if you're an adult and you're competent, you get to decide, not the government, you get to decide what shall be done with your own body. That's pretty extraordinary. Yes, it is extraordinary and prescient and forward-thinking for something that over 100 years ago uh, has been out uh, within the New York courts. Let me ask you, what do you see with the current U.S. Supreme Court, let's just assume with the with the court that we have now, uh, where might there be some changes in precedent or historical case law that we've seen that that might potentially be pulled back? I think certainly protections against discrimination. Uh, the New York Court of Appeals can certainly uh, go much further than than the Trump court would want to go. And, and in fact, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the leading cases of the DeFiori court is one that uh, the chief herself wrote. That's the Kimmel versus State case. It's a four to two case. She writes the majority opinion and she says, under the Equal Access to Justice Act, if an attorney is successful in representing a uh, sexual discrimination client against the state, against the state, Uh, the attorney is entitled to attorney's fees, which was not at all clear from the statute. So the court has two different ways to interpret the statute. And so she interprets the statute in a way that's going to encourage attorneys to take the cases of clients who've been discriminated against by the state. Uh, I wouldn't imagine that the Trump court, this current United States Supreme Court, would rule that way. In fact, I'm pretty sure they would rule the other way, because whether we're talking about criminal cases or we're talking about civil cases, again, very ideologically conservative, this court. Let me ask you your thoughts on the U.S. Supreme Court, because with the additional conservative judges that have been added, yes. there's really been a little bit of a change in the ballot in the balance. I mean, we had yes. Justice Kennedy, Kennedy was viewed as kind of the swing vote, swing. and you know now we have two conservatives right. that are that are uh, in that in, in those spots on the end, right. and uh, you see just, uh, the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts right. is kind of moving to more yes. towards the middle to be a swing vote, not necessarily because of his predisposition, right. but because of his concern for the court yes. as an institution. Right. He seems to have this overriding view that he doesn't want the court to be viewed as an ideologue. He wants it to be, you know, take it on a case-by-case basis, not have uh, decisions that are coming out just uh, from a knee-jerk uh, reaction and not be political, certainly. That's right. You can it, see that happening. Absolutely. You know, look, in history, this is going to be called the Roberts Court, right? We're, t- we're talking about, it. you know, maybe the Trump Court. But in history, it's going to be called the Roberts Court. And chief justices, as well as chief judges of the New York Court of Appeals, must be concerned about that. They've got to be concerned not only about the legitimacy of the court during the time they're in the center seat, but how will the court be remembered? Not only, in ter- again, in terms of legitimacy, but 
Was this a great court? Was this a mediocre court? Was this a really weak court? I think that that's paramount. Oregon overturned precedents that's of right. years and years. That, and that's right. Is this go- For example, you know, when you think of the court, the United States Supreme Court, prior to uh, the era of Earl Warren, pri- which was immediately prior to Brown versus Board of Education, who remembers the Fred Vinson court? As a good court, it was a rotten court. In fact, the court. Mrs. Vinson. V i n s o n. Fred Vinson. Yeah, and in fact, uh, <laughs> yeah, and in fact, that court was going to rule the opposite way in Brown versus Board of Education. That court was going to uphold Plessy versus Ferguson. In fact, when. Uh, Poor Fred Vincent died of a heart attack. Felix Frankfurter apparently said, it's the first time I believe there's a God. You know, so, but I mean, we don't remember the Vincent court as being a particularly good court. We recognize it or we view it as kind of a failure. We recognize the Warren court as this, kind, this court, whether we agree with his decisions or not, we recognize it as one of the great courts in American history. He took that court. And he really moved the law forward to enhance civil rights and civil liberties. Does Roberts want to be remembered as a Vinson or right. does he want to be remembered as an Earl Warren? Or even does he want to be remembered as a William Rehnquist who, very, very conservative, but a brilliant man and recognized as really a fine chief justice? Right. And well, we're still certainly in the middle of the Roberts yes. court. And this is like looking at a baseball player and saying, That's right. you know, do they belong in the Hall of Fame? We don't know yet. Right. We need to see. But you can see. Oh, you the, can certainly You can see, see. The, 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 the balance that he right. needs to have here. I mean, when you're saying it's the Roberts court, but there's judges on this court that have that are independent thinkers uh, on the left and the right, right. And he has to be able to, you know, pull them together and guide them in a particular direction direction in a very nuanced uh, and, and I'm going to say very difficult way, I, I, it would seem. Right. And we've seen, we've seen indications of what, what he has done. So in that Carpenter case with regard to um, cell phones and cell phone location data, you know, he joined with the liberals, wrote the opinion saying there's just so much information that can be gathered from, you know, cell phone location data that uh, police need probable cause and a warrant to go look at that. And and he kind of disregarded lots of the Supreme Court's previous much more conservative precedents in order to reach that decision. And then with regard to same-sex marriage, there was a case that came out of Arkansas where Arkansas wasn't going to allow same-sex married couples to have their names on the birth certificates of their, their children and he voted with the uh, with the liberals, and he said, "We've already decided in the Obergefell case, you can't uh, discriminate against same-sex couples, you know." And so, so you can see in some of these cases where he's going. And by the way, Gorsuch, Gorsuch writes a dissenting opinion saying, "Oh, Arkansas, you know, Arkansas." really wasn't dissenting against uh, or disagreeing with same-sex couples in our decision in Obergefeld, because in Obergefeld, we only ruled the same-sex couples can get married. We didn't rule that they were entitled to marital benefits. I mean, I mean, this is where you're going in that court. Right. And the, Roberts has got to save the court from that kind of nonsense. Right, and the hoops that Gorsuch yes. jumps through to, oh. to make it seem like hard, it's not overturning and that's precedent. Hard, and that's hardly the only thing he's done so far. So Roberts, look, 
Robert, Roberts knows Gorsuch is mediocre. I mean, come on. And there have been already studies about that. You know, he knows that. I don't know what he thinks of Kavanaugh, but he knows that the court is probably trying. Some of the justices want to go too far backward. He can't allow that to happen for the legitimacy of the Roberts court. And, you know, Roberts said when he was being considered for yes. chief judge, his great respect for precedent. Right. And naturally, all all the judges that go before the confirmation process say that uh, sometimes they don't make law, they a little, precedent, you know, yeah, blah, there's blah, a little blah, nuance right. in how they say it. Yeah. Um, and I think, in fact, Kavanaugh was talking about uh, the fact that, you know, others we're talking right. about that some precedents were stronger than others. That's right. And he kind of uh, made it into kind of a third-party conversation. Right. And it wasn't his opinion, right. but that he was just commenting on third parties. But Roberts was, I think, a little bit stronger in his presentation and his respect yes. for precedent. And it seems to me that when he's guiding the course, he has that institutional respect that perhaps some of the other um, judges that are a little bit more uh, on the ideological spectrum right. don't have. No, his was a brilliant performance at the uh, Senate confirmation hearings. And, and getting back to the DeFiori court, I was at uh, Janet DeFiori's uh, hearing before the Senate confirmation, um, Senate Judiciary Committee, and her performance was brilliant as well. I mean, this is, this is really a terrific uh, human being, a terrific uh, – she's bright as can be. I think she's a great leader. And in fact, you know, in terms of top ten, if I had to list the top uh, decisions of the DeFiori court, I would say at least, at least three of them are hers. You know, I mean, right off the bat, she starts off with that People versus Sean John. It's a four to three uh, decision. And the dissent by Garcia, uh, Judge Michael Garcia, is great too. But she gets the majority of the court to say, look, the right to uh, cross-examination, the right to confront adverse witnesses includes the right to confront the DNA analyst. So you don't just get this blanket report. No, the defense gets to, you know, uh, interrogate, gets to question, you know, the analyst. And, uh, you know, again, I mentioned the Kimmel case, Kimmel versus state, where she said, no, the equal access to justice, that applies when the state is the defendant that's been discriminating. And it's not always in a liberal, in a liberal sense, but... Uh, I remember People versus Parker was a fairly recent one in which she wrote this great dissent, talk about precedents. She really wanted to dilute the heck out of a precedent, which I've always thought was kind of moronic, which is that this precedent that, uh, that if there's a note from a juror, it must absolutely be put on the record. It's got to be put on the record what that note was and what the defendant and defense counsel said about that note. Well, it wasn't necessarily on the record, but it was pretty clear that the defendant knew about the note, defense counsel knew about the note. They didn't seem to have much problem with the note. Uh, this is, but based on this Orama decision from years ago, automatic reversal. You never look at whether there was any prejudice. Well, there was absolutely no prejudice in this case. So the majority of the court, the four to three majority, says, well, automatic reversal. And she writes this beautiful dissenting opinion saying, yeah, 
you know, uh, maybe Orama ought not to stand for that. And there's absolutely no prejudice in this case. Why are we reversing this conviction? We know the guy's guilty. There's really no harm in this case. I had a case once uh, where we get a note from the jury, and it's always very yeah, exciting yeah, yeah, when yeah. You get a, the jury has a, you know, a question. Right. And so we were the plaintiff. We were looking for, you know, sub substantial damages. Yeah. And uh, the note from the jury says – can we have a calculator? <laughs> this is my favorite note because it means, you know, they can't even calculate oh. how much they're going to give us. Um, That's an automatic reversal, I isn't was it? so happy. <laughs> and and uh, the opposing counsel obviously was upset by yeah. this. And the judge said, is there any objection? Defense counsel said, yes, we object. And the, the judge says, well, on what grounds? He said, well, th there was no calculator ever introduced into evidence. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> so the judge says, I'll tell you what, I'll let them use my calculator. <laughs> oh, isn't that something? So isn't now you that? talked about a couple of dissents here at the Court yeah. of Appeals. And you said how you loved, you know, you loved the dissents. We already talked about Judge Kay's dissent. Some of the best opinions at the Court of Appeals are always the dissents. And you as a court watcher have studied... Uh, you know, the court's overall propensity yes. to have dissents. And, you know, one of the things from the Judge K court was that there was less dissents. Very, very uh, few she dissents. She liked to have the unanimous decisions. Wh what are you seeing now as far as where we're going with dissents? And, and is, that, is there a plus or a minus of having uh, a lot of uh, dissents? Well, I'm on the side of uh, Chief Judge Lippman, uh, and I think that dissents are excellent. It really requires the majority to answer the tough questions. When I see a unanimous decision on a very difficult issue, what I say to myself is, give me a break. There's no way you could get seven smart, um, conscientious judges to all agree on this de very difficult issue. So what does that mean? That means there's a lot of fudging, that means there's a lot of covering up of the really difficult questions. It's much more difficult to do that when there's a dissent, you know. And so, for example, we've said, you know, Chief Judge Kay's dissent in Hernandez, brilliant, you know, and she really put it to the majority, right. what the weaknesses in right. the majority were. I think, you know, DeFiori's dissent in Parker, the same way. And there have been several dissents uh, more recently by uh, Judge Rowan Wilson and Judge uh, Jenny Rivera that have really pointed out to some real flaws in the majority opinion. Unfortunately, some of those majority opinions were unsigned. Oh, why would they unsign them? Well, if you were embarrassed by the opinion, you wouldn't sign it either. And some of these opinions unsigned are really not worthy of this court. But you've had. What does that mean when when you say the the decisions unsigned? Usually, it says somebody was writing for the yeah. majority. In these in these instances, uh, there's a majority, but uh, they're not. Nobody takes credit for writing the decision. Is that how it goes? Right. So, for example, there was a case not too long ago, uh, People versus Thibodeau, and it had to do with a uh, request for post-conviction relief. There were some really good reasons to think that the defendant was wrongfully convicted. Uh, it's a, it ends up being four to three. Whoever wrote the decision for the court didn't sign it. I wouldn't have signed it either. If I wrote it, because it's not very good. So but it the comes judges out, it's a memorandum. But you know the judges that support it. Yeah, but right? you don't know yes. who wrote it. Right. You don't know exactly now, who wrote it. Now, and there's a 30-page dissent by Judge Jenny uh, Rivera, 
which is brilliant, which shows that how could the majority possibly be ruling this way? Now, there there is historical precedent for unsigned uh, decisions, right? I mean, uh, sometimes it's just, uh, but not when there's cases of, of like substantial dissents, right? Uh, okay, just, come just on. For, there's a company the, line. There's a company line about unsigned memoranda. Uh, there's no real issue here. This right, is right, completely right. settled right. law. Blah, blah, yeah, blah blah blah. That's not true. That's not why they do it all the time. When you've got a four to three decision right. out of the court and it involves something like a constitutional issue or the possibility of a wrongful conviction, we're not talking about something that's routine, right. settled law. So the company line isn't always accurate. I mean, because I've got decisions back from an appellate court that says yes. the lower court's decision is affirmed. End of decision. That I mean, that's the extent yeah. of the analysis. Just yeah. affirmed. And so, I mean, if that's unsigned, there's not really any thought right. there. But you're talking about uh, a case where there's dissent yes. and there's uh, apparently substantial dissent. And strenuous dissents that raise all kinds of questions that you say, wait a minute, these three, these three or four paragraphs in this unsigned memorandum don't answer any of this stuff. So right. what's going on here? Well, probably something else that isn't in the memorandum. Uh, opinion, that, right? That so you've so up. you've served as a as a as a fellow at the Supreme Court yeah. and a, a clerk at the Court of Appeals. So what's what is going on when when you see an unsigned decision? What's going on? Uh, well, there's a few things. A few things going on. One of them is that uh, oftentimes the court doesn't want to bring too much attention. I see to the decision. Another, oftentimes it is because it's kind of routine. It's kind of routine. It's this procedural matter. And, okay, what's so important? Why are you dissenting with, with this thing? Um, but oftentimes it's uh, maybe they can't get four votes unless they write this thing that's totally innocuous, doesn't really stand for anything whatsoever. That's the only way they can get four Very votes neutral, for, this, down. for this result. Right. Yeah. Right. For example, right. there, there is a particular case. Um, it went up to the United but States. But that's why we have concurring opinions, right? That's, that's right. right. And those yeah. are good, too. I mean, there was one case years ago. It went up to the United States Supreme Court. The majority was unsigned. It was an unsigned the dissent was written by Judge Jason, uh, who I had clerked for, but I wasn't there for the dissent. Went up to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court, after granting cert and hearing oral arguments, dismissed the case on the ground that they couldn't figure out what the Court of Appeals had decided <laughs> in its unsigned opinion. Bingo. Probably exactly what the majority wanted because right. they couldn't agree on their reasoning. Right. Yeah. The best kind of decision. Can you is. imagine? <laughs> yeah. So we've we've seen so we've seen been seeing some of that now. We saw quite a bit of it uh, in the uh, late '80s and very very early '90s. In fact, when I wrote about it back then, some of the judges were very very upset. But I did get phone calls from a majority of the judges saying. We know who's doing it, and you're absolutely right, and we're not going to uh, write unsigned opinions anymore. Yeah. Well, you said some very nice things about the New York Court of Appeals uh, oh, it's today. The and, the, hey, and we my are, favorite court in the country, and historically the best court. And in your article, you say, you know, we're going to be relying on, on them to That's protect right. our liberties. That's right. And so it's always a pleasure, Professor Bonventry, to have you here. Great to be with we you. do have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called... Mm. 
movie book or music the last time you heard you sang for us uh so what have you what do you got for us today well it's oscar season right (laughs) we just went to the movies and i was thinking uh the first movie i ever saw it was at a drive-in uh with my with my parents it was the summer of 1955 i actually looked it up to see what year it actually was so i'm six years old 1955 it starred gig young Dar's Day, and Mr. Sinatra. And Mm. Mr. Sinatra, you know what it was? Well, it just turned 70, so it has a lot of meaning for me. Fairy tales can Mm. come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. Is that a great movie? And a great song. Great movie. You're singing for us again. <laughs> it's always I had to. <laughs> it's always great to have you here, Professor Bonventry. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't. <laughs>